Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Philacrosophy Podcast. Really excited to welcome Brad Ross, head coach of Bryant University. Brad, really fired up to have you on the show. And um, how are you doing up there in Rhode Island? We're great. We're uh, enjoying our fall, kind of uh, starting to turn the page a little bit into this last phase, going back to eight hours. And uh, it's been great. Yeah. Being a... Um... I've done a few podcasts lately with uh, new Division One head coaches. Um, it's a pretty consistent theme of a lot to do. Um, how are you? Uh, how are you enjoying it? How are you handling it? Um, give us a little feedback on your first couple months. No, uh, well, I'll say this: is I just saw you did one with uh, Justin Terry, and the goal of my podcast is to be better than his. So <laughs> we uh, we got to go after this year, Jamie, for the next hour, right? <laughs> awesome. All right, let's um let's knock off. Let's let's knock off the quick um, bio. Tell mm-hmm. us where you came from um, and um, and some of the mentors you had along the way. And maybe we can dig into some of what you learned um, once we kind of get through the bio. Piece. Sure. Well, I think we were talking kind of before we started up here. And you know, I'm someone that is, is honestly as, as lucky as it comes when you talk about the people that I've been able to be involved with and be associated with. And my fear is, is obviously not um, mentioning people that have had an impact, but I'm going to do my best. You know, I think starting off, I was born and raised, you know, outside of Washington, D.C. Went to the best lacrosse middle school in the world, modern day middle school. Nice. Uh, so I uh, I laugh, you know, like now I getting a chance to compete against Kevin Giblin, like here's a guy who, who taught me how to play the game. Um, you know, so kind of started there. Went to Bullis High School, uh, played for Mike Del Grand, who, you know, was – was really kind of my first introduction into hard coaching, yeah. <laughs> which transitioned pretty quickly into Coach Pressler. So we uh, we kept that theme going. <laughs> so I did my undergrad and grad at Duke. Uh, as we said before, undergrad finished in 08, grad in 09, and then transitioned off into uh, my first job at Brown. You know, But before that, obviously everything in 06, uh, and then transition between Coach Pressler and Coach Janowski. Um, you know, it was obviously very unique in a trying time, um, but huge impacts on my life. Coach Presser will come back to, but certainly Coach Janowski. Uh, then transition into Brown, like we mentioned, uh, yep. working with Lars in my first year coaching. That would have been fall 09. Uh, spent wow. one year with Lars and then had an opportunity to come here to Bryant to work with Coach P and, and hopefully repay him for some of the stuff that he did for us. He get an opportunity to learn from him. Four years with Coach P, then uh, went to Ohio State with Nick for five years, uh, and then the last three years, you know, with Joe at Navy. Yeah, wow, what a phenomenal opportunity to to coach under some just great people and some great coaches at amazing institutions too. And it, I think that's where you know when people ask about the background, the cool thing for me has been, you know, to start at uh, Brown you know, an Ivy League institution with kind of a different agenda, you know, than, than what I was used to at Duke. Um, and then kind of go then from the Ivy League to a kind of a smaller business-centric private school in Bryant, a big super school, public school in Ohio State, and then, you know, most recently a service academy. So getting kind of four different opportunities and four really different head coaches to work under uh, certainly was a, a wide range of experience. Let's let's go reverse chronological order. Tell us a little bit about about what it was like going to Navy, working for Coach Amplo. Oh, I love Joe. It was kind of a startup situation for him, right? I mean, it was he, he when he yeah. he got the job, he hired you. Joe's the best, you know. I, I he, in a nutshell, I, I think what he did such a good job of, and and I'm so fortunate for my experience with him, is you know he showed me that you can. Um, really, really enjoy what you're doing. You can enjoy, you know, who you're doing it with, enjoy coming to practice every day and still win games and, and be really successful. Um, 
I think a lot of what we've we've done here at Bryant in our first three months in terms of like culture creation and, and player involvement and trying to make this program as, as player led as we can stems from a lot of that relationship with Joe. Uh, he's incredible at that stuff. He really is. It's pretty funny how, you know, Joe hired two guys that I remember as recruits between you running around in your yellow bulls helmet, blowing by guys and shooting on the run and coach Orson, who at the time was a lefty attackman, if I recall Orson's done it all. He actually ran the New York City Marathon this past weekend, but I think Orson was a lefty attackman. And then Old Spring uh, Harbor. I remember. He would, he would probably tell you that, you know, his skills weren't being utilized. So they decided to move him to D Midi. Right. And then the uh the kind of the famous move then from D Midi to Longstick Midi, you know, where he ended up as an All-American and obviously went on to a great outdoor career and indoor career. So let's talk a little bit about Ohio State, the Ohio State working for Coach Myers. You know, Nick is like never ceases to amaze me with just how buttoned up he is and how he like literally has a plan for everything he does. And it's a pretty Absolutely. damn smart plan. Um, what are some of the things you learned from from Nick and from your experiences there? You know, I, I think what Nick does a great job of is when you talk about like a comprehensive program, you know, yeah. like we talked about a lot there, like a 360 degree program where there's really no stone left unturned. There's no T that's not crossed or I that's dotted. You know, I think when you are kind of put into that situation where, you know, you're certainly very forced as an assistant coach, be buttoned up in all your plans, um, certainly from a scouting perspective, from a recruiting perspective, it makes you think a lot about, you know, what you want to do, why you want to do it, uh, why you would explain how you want to do it. Um, you know, so I think that particular piece in terms of, the uh, kind of preparation to be a head coach and, and putting together plans and projecting plans out uh, was incredibly invaluable. So prior to that, Coach Presser, were you the offensive coordinator with him too? Yes. Yep. So I think, you know, with Coach Press, here's a guy who, you know, as I sit in recruiting meetings, you know, all the time and, and kids come in, you know, you talk about impacts on your life. Um, I mean, I, I literally have, you know, one of uh, Coach Presser's sayings like engraved on the inside of my wedding ring. Um, so that's somebody that's had an unbelievable impact on my life. And coincidentally, like coaches will talk about a lot in recruiting meetings, like these are 40 year commitments. You know, it's 20 years almost to the day, you know, now, November, um, that I committed to play for Coach Presser wow. and coming to take over his program and Actually, we bought his house, too, oddly enough. <laughs> so his impact to me, you know, we could spend an, hour, an entire hour, you know, obviously talking about his impact on on us uh, as players, as men, um, but something I'll always be grateful for. And then you had one year with Lars. Yeah. Uh, and Lars is like, well, he and I were captains together of the 89 Brown team. So I, I've known Lars very well for a long time. Really, really smart guy. Really interesting guy in the way he coaches. I mean, it's so what a diverse group of guys that you've worked for. Absolutely. Um, that have all won at different left, differing and amazing levels. But what did you learn from Lars? You know, it's funny. I, I've probably apologized to Lars like five times in the last 15 years for being a know-it-all, you know, 23-year-old kid. You know, you, you graduate college and, and you've had success as a team. And, you know, there's so much to learn, right? I think every year that I coach, I, I, I realize I learn. I need to continue to learn. And, and I, I don't know nearly as much as I think I know. Um, you oh. know, so in that transition to Lars, I think that was really my introduction to coaching, you know, in reality. Um, and, and I'm very grateful for my relationship with him and I'm, I'm so happy for him and all the success that he's had. 2010. Did you guys go to the NCAA tournament that year? We didn't, we lost in the Ivy league. Uh, I want to say Final? semifinals. Yeah. Yeah. Semifinals, finals. Yeah. It was a good team. And then, um, and then it was Duke. And so you um, tell us a little bit about how, how things um, played out in your under Coach Danowski. You guys definitely like were knocking at the door, and you just missed that national championship by a year, I guess. Correct. Yep. Correct. Yeah. Um, uh, Coach Dino was such a. Um, it was obviously such a different um, person and personality than Coach Presser, and and they they certainly coached the game differently. Both guys, unbelievably successful, right? I mean, talking about people that are top five wins all time. And what's neat as a coach is for you to see that, you know, you can win and you can do it in a lot of different ways. 
you know, but ultimately you just have to be authentic to, to who you are and what you believe. And there's a lot of different ways to do it. And ultimately just going to depend on how well you do it. You know, I think the biggest thing that, you know, coach Dino did such a great job of with us in 07 is, you know, this is a bunch of guys that were hurting and, and had been through a lot. And he did such a great job of just reigniting a love for the game. And that's something that, you know, we could talk again about all day. And one of the things that we've really tried to get across to our players is that like playing college lacrosse is not a grind. And I can't stand when people say that, um, you know, you're doing four and three drills with your boys, you're lifting weights. It's, it's not a grind. And if it feels like a grind for you, you know, you, you certainly don't love the game. So he did such a great job of, of re, reigniting that love for the game. And it's something that's carried over to, to my entire coaching career. And how much are you as a coach trying to like, make sure that it's, you're not trying to make it a grind. I mean, I think sometimes, yeah. you know, um, coaches and including myself, and it's like, almost like it's a rite of passage to like make it hard. And, you know, there's things that have to be hard, but, but honestly, it's more about the love of playing and the love of your teammate. Right. Yeah. And that's a good point, Jamie. I think, you know, one of the things that we talk about with our guys a lot is that I think a lot of people look at like hard work and fun as, as mutually exclusive items. Right. And they're not, you know, you can play really hard and, and you can make it really hard, but you can still enjoy doing it. And, and that's something we've, we've really tried to hold our guys to is that when they lack excitement or energy or juice, like those are the moments actually that we're calling timeouts in practice and getting after them, not based off of, uh, of failures or dropped balls because that's always driven me crazy. You know, honestly, like I remember, you know, being a player and you get yelled at for dropping a ball and your reaction in your mind is like, I'm not trying to drop the ball coach, you know? Um, so for us, it, that's really where we focus a lot of our energy is making sure that every practice, like we have unbelievable excitement to be out there and every drill we're getting after it. How many years did you play in the MLL for the Boston Cannons? So I played for the Cannons for three years. Uh, I played for Toronto, actually, my first year, um, and then Rochester, my last. So I got a year with uh, Dave Huntley. You know, it's funny when you talk about, like, transitions from different moments. Like, you joked about me running down the alley and shooting it, you know, and here I am then, like, uh, a month after, you know, finishing grad school, and I'm getting yelled at by all the Canadian guys for taking a shot from, like, 10 yards. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a uh, a big transition in my career for sure. Yeah. How how big of an impact did it have on you as a young assistant coach being able to play at the highest level and to be sort of coaching and playing at the same time? Yeah, I think what I realized, you know, as it went on is that it was going to be really hard to be great at both. And, and that's the challenge that, that I think people face who are in that world is that the amount of time it takes to to keep yourself in shape to keep your skills sharp it's a lot and when you're recruiting all summer you know i can remember um one game we played um at uh, the broncos invesco right yep. and i remember running out on on the grass field and thinking to myself i'm gonna suck today <laughs> <laughs> you know you've been like in long island for a day maryland for a day uh, you know, upstate New York for a day and then fly in the day before a game. Um, you know, so I do think it's really hard to be great at both. But yeah, what, was sure. really, what was really cool was that it was a it was a crash course in a lot of other different ways to do things. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have dip guys from different programs, from different universities that have had a ton of success. And to them, playing team offense might have looked differently than it did to me at Duke. And that was that was really cool as a young coach to be able to absorb some of that different information from different people. Also to kind of see how people do different things, you know, I mean, just to be exposed to that level of play um, mm -hmm. had to have helped, you know, define what what skilled means to you and, and, no and try to develop it. There's no doubt. Absolutely right. Speaking of which, this popped into my head. What was it like to to play with um, Donowski and Greer when they were like uh, just like to describe their connection and, and what was so special about the way those, you know, like one of the best feeders of all time and one of the best goal scorers? Yeah. Of all time? Well, I mean, both those guys, you know, certainly are people I'm still close with to the day. You know, Zach was a groom's in my wedding. Um, you know, Matt and I stay in contact, obviously, both in coaching, um, you know, their skill sets were things that like I hadn't seen before. 
You know, I'd never seen someone pass the ball as hard as Matt did. I'd never seen somebody catch passes so effort, effortlessly as Zach did. You know, like if I have like burned in, uh, you know, images in my mind, you know, it's Matt standing at the top of a, of a 3-3 and shooting like a 95-mile-an-hour pass to Greer, catching it backhanded and dunking it and, and just my jaw being on the ground. You know, that, that, those are like the, the burning images in my mind of, of that connection between them. Of They made the impossible look right, very possible and did it quite often. And their nonverbal communication – Incredible. Yeah, they just always knew what they were going to do, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, Greer was always open, you know, and, and that's that's part of the connection, right? He's, especially when you got righty feeders and lefty finishers, is that relationship between those guys and the trust that they had in each other. You know yeah. what what is open for one guy might not be open for another, and uh, you know to bat certainly Zach was always open. So give us a little. Um, let's switch gears and talk a little bit. Talk a little Bryant fall ball. Mm-hmm. What was your what was your schedule like? How did you how did you kind of like kick it off as it relates to the eight hours and the twenty hours and and how you tried to begin to formulate your team and stuff like that? So we did the reverse of what a lot of teams do. Um, so we actually started eight hours. So what we did was we went uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday uh, for an hour on the field. Then we were in the weight room for forty five minutes. Um, so by going away for forty five minutes, we earned our, ourselves back an hour. So we met on Wednesdays uh, for five weeks uh, on culture and culture creation and, and things that you know I think hopefully the guys would say were pretty impactful. Um, so we spent about five weeks there and then transitioned into our 20-hour phase. We went for three weeks or so in the 20-hour phase, scrimmage Holy Cross and LIU, and then kind of went back to two more weeks of 20 hours which just finished up this past Friday um, before this last shift back to eight hours as we kind of closed the fallout. When you sort of think about the the one hour on Wednesdays for the culture creation and stuff, um, what what are some of the values you're trying to impart or are you really trying to have them establish what they are or a little both? Yeah, it's, it's definitely about 50% of each. You know, I think one of the unique things here is that, you know, I'm in a situation where, you're coming into a program that the, the trade is very firmly on the tracks, right? I mean, Coach Press has done such a great job here. So there's a delicate balance of, of certainly keeping a, a lot of what's made this program successful and, and what's made a lot of Coach Presser's team successful. Uh, but then certainly there's being some shifts and, and making it authentic to us and who we are and kind of what our vision is. So what we really decided on, Jamie, was that um, we wanted to give them like the vision and the mission and then allow them being the players to create the principles and behaviors that we're going to attach to these principles. You know, so for us, we look at, you know, great leaders doing three things, you know, number one, right. You got to tell people where they're going and and that's the vision part. Uh, But if I gave you a set of car keys and said, go from Rhode Island to California with no roadmap, no GPS, there's no way you get there. So that, that roadmap, if you will, that's going to be the mission of your program. And then that accountability piece, those are really your principles. And so what we decided to do was give them, like I said, the vision and the mission. We laid that out for them in that first meeting. And then we spent the next four Wednesdays with them and they working, them working on the principles and behaviors that we were going to attach. Um, And that was a really fun process. And I hope they would agree. I love that. It's kind of like they have the task, but you're giving them a chance to figure out how they're going to get there and what how they're going to do it. And, and it's, a, it's hopefully for us a little bit of a shift from, you know, a coach fed program to a player led program, you know, which, you know, in my opinion, is going to have more longe- longevity. You're going to have more ownership you know, over this because hopefully they're things that they created and they believe in. Um, and if it comes from them, then then hopefully they they uphold those much more than if we just kind of jammed it down their throats. So true. How are you seeing that uh, manifest itself like in practice? Well, I think when you give them ownership over these things that you know they're going to kind of put on the wall, you know it, it's it's a sneaky way, and I'm obviously giving it away on a podcast. <laughs> but like we get to yell at them that you know these are the things that you guys chose, and you're not upholding. Um, but I think that that player led part, you know, one of the things that I've always been passionate about has been 
you know, the ability for players to step up in practice when they feel like things aren't going the right way. You know, if a drill's not going the right way, what I really want is I want guys to right, come up to coach and say, hey, coach, this drill stinks. Can you put five more minutes up on the clock? You know, to give them the ability to call a timeout during a six-on-six six session, you know, where, you know, the defense is the hammer and the offense is the nail, you know, for one of those offensive players to get a quick 30-second timeout and bring it in and have those conversations. Um, because if we do put them in those moments and kind of empower them in those moments, then, right, hopefully for them, whether it's a Saturday night socially, you know, or a Sunday when they want to get guys out in the field to shoot, they're going to feel like, right, they've earned the influence to be able to do that. Yeah, and it's that it's that player-led stuff off the field that, you know, makes or breaks you, as you know. Well, I mean, it's funny. Like, we talk about as a staff, I bet a lot of money that, you know, over 50% of college across teams run the same big little, right? You're going to be in a 2-2-2. Two, two, two. You're going to high-low the crease. You're going to trade the weak side. You're going to triangle rotate, okay? So, like, if we rely on ourselves to be smarter than everybody else, individual on the cross, we're not going to win a lot of games because we're all doing a lot of the same stuff. But the reality of what makes great programs great is what happens on a Saturday night or what happens on a Sunday. How many guys are on the field shooting on a Sunday or on an off day on a Wednesday when you're eight hours? Like that's what's going to define long-term success for our program. No doubt. Um, really cool. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the fall in terms of like um, how you kind of kicked off the development of your program in your eight hours. Um, how much time were you putting into player development versus scheme and, and how did yep. you go about that? So of those four practices, uh, two of them were individual practices. So, uh, you know, Tackman, we really didn't do like attackman and midfielders separated because the reality of the way the game goes, and, and obviously you know this, is that those lines are more blurred than ever. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're getting – 10, 10, 15 offensive players at a time, um, you know, goalies by themselves. We did the, that on Monday and Friday. And then on Tuesday and Thursday, we did team practices. Um, now, in those team practices, we spent a lot more time on that player development piece, um, certainly, than, um, you know, maybe in years past at different places. But we, I would say of an hour there, you know, we were spending probably 30 minutes on the development part in that team setting and then really trying to establish a framework of like what a good practice looked like to us, right? What does it mean to stretch? What does it mean to line your gear up on the sidelines? What does it mean to, um, you know, have a two minute break between drills and like be ready to go for the next drill? So trying to get out of that 20 hour phase with some expectations of, of what we wanted it to look like when we got to 20 mm -hmm. so that we weren't kind of spending that time in the 20 teaching them how we wanted them to practice. What, um, what is your definition of fundamentals and how did you stress those um, with the team? So there's probably two ways to look at this. You know, I think there's, there's fundamentals of like skill development, skill work. Yeah metals of like what we want the program to be about okay so when i say that the, the second piece like the pace at which we practice like that's a, a hard and fast one right like how hard we go in drills how hard we run the field you know if there's a, a loose ball on the end line and a run out like we're diving for end lines we when a guy gets knocked down after he scores there should be five off offensive players like pushing d guys out of the way to pick them up Right. So like the fundamental part of how you practice and what your program is built on is certainly really important. Now, like the fundamental piece of of playing the game, I feel like that's more fluid now than I probably believed it to be when I first started playing and coaching. Um, the game certainly has changed. It doesn't take a genius to realize the game has evolved and changed. And, you know, what was considered good offense or good technique Um 15 years ago might not necessarily be the same now. Tell me what I'm going to, I'm going to rattle off a few different um, um, fundamental principles and I want to get your feet. Uh, you get some, get some thoughts on them. So um, how about shot selection? So the way that we do um, shot selection and I've done this for a number of years now 
is, you know, quite often when we have inter-squad scrimmages, certainly, you know, scrimmages against opponents, games, what we'll have the team do is to kind of educate them on, on what we believe a good shot or a great shot or a bad shot is, is we'll play the shots for the guys and I'll have them basically stat them out one, two, or three. You know, a one is a shot we're taking every time, right? We would love to get a one. You know, you're hoping to can score on a lot of those opportunities. You know, a two is like your maybes, and then your threes are your no's. And then having them start to understand context with a shot clock. So, you know, what is a, a one, you know, or a two um, at the end of a clock right, could be a, a two or a three in the beginning of a clock. So knowing what that looks like to be successful. Now, the honest piece, Jamie, is that, you know, we have spent, um, you know, certainly some time on that. But what I think we've we focused a lot on as a staff and this fall, and hopefully our players would agree, is we're trying to really see what the limitations of our guys are. Mm -hmm. um, so we haven't put a lot of, of uh, restrictions on guys because we want to see what people are capable of because ultimately we got to know what people are capable of to, to put them in a situation where, uh, you know, what is a one for one guy might be a two or a three for the other. Right. And so therefore a one can be a dunk, but it could be, you know, a time and room shot from, a, from, with, from a good angle with, with right. distance that you can hammer that thing. Yeah. You know, I think that that is a good way to look at it. Um, you know, a good example would be, you know, we feel like we're playing at a really fast pace, you know, from a transition perspective, but knowing that like in that transition early offense phase, you're looking right for ones, you know, you don't want to settle for twos. And, and that's, that's a part that's going to take some time. Um, certainly. What's but, a two, like an alley shot from outside the hashes and nine yards. Yeah, I think when you're looking at that, a two is like a runner, you know, you're sweeping, you're at, you know, 10, 12 yards. You know, those are shots that, you know, a good player will hit, you know, a fairly high percentage of the time, uh, but not ones that like, you don't want to come bombing out of the box. And, you know, and rip a 12 yarder down the alley on the run. Uh, now, some of this conversation also is based off of how teams play you. Of course. You know, if you've got a team that, you know, doesn't want to support a, a you know, an all on ball defender and they're going to force you to beat, beat them with some runners, then you're going to be forced to take some of those, you know, to try to soften them up a little bit. Okay. How about, um, how about ball movement? How do you coach it? How do you think about it? Um, how much do you stress it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that, you know, everybody will certainly talk about a lot. You know, I think there's a lot of really cool statistics, certainly, that would show you whether it's indoor, outdoor, the amount of times that the ball switches from one side of the field to the other or a top to bottom. You know, the, the certainly the higher success rate goes up, you know, with your opportunity to score. Um, but that's something that, you know, when you talk about playing team offense and being unselfish is certainly something that we are are going to preach every day. I think we're focusing significantly right now on trying to increase our assisted goals. That's something that we're focusing a lot in practice of trying to um, certainly hammer that out as something that we want to be really proud of. You know, uh, and again, a lot of this stuff, as you know, it's, it's a ping pong. You know, you play a team that doesn't want to slide to, you're probably going to have to score some unassisted goals and a team that slides a ton. You should be having a lot of tap-ins if you're moving the ball the right way. Right. Um, okay, how about deception? How much do you stress that um, in the way you teach guys to play um, offensively and or defensively too? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, offensively, there's two ways to look at this. There's certainly like shooting deception and then there is like off-ball deception. And I'll start with the second. Um, you know, we actually were doing an individual session the other day, you know, talking about how um, we don't want to make – the defense is life very easy in, in playing in a lot of straight lines, right? Like understanding that when you cut, it doesn't have to always be like a diagonal cut on a hundred, hundred mile an hour, hundred, you know, hundred percent speed. Um, so learning how to play behind defenders helmets is super important. You know, like learning how to clear through behind defenders helmets and how much more stress that puts on the defense rather than clearing through in front of a defender's helmet teaching guys to cut behind helmets. So like an L cut, for example, you know, like when you're coming from the wing and you're cutting in and the ball goes through X and you're cutting a pipe, like how much more successful you're going to be if you just simply take the extra yard and go behind that defender's helmet on the inside versus in front. 
you know, the, the deception piece in shooting, you know, I think it's a great conversational topic. I'll, I'll be honest, I, we haven't spent a ton of time in the last 15 years working on those specific skills because I think a lot of guys just fundamentally struggle to shoot the ball like correctly. You know, there's so much variation in the way that people shoot the ball. And it's something I'm fairly passionate about. But I do think that, and certainly something that's changed a lot over the years for me, like when I joked about kind of apologizing to Lars for being a know-it-all at 23, <laughs> um, the reality is is some guys have skill sets and, and their skill sets can be a little bit different than others. And as a coach, we're not doing our job if we're not trying to maximize people's skill sets. I kind of feel like fun, um, the fundamental deception runs through literally every element of everything that happens because basically the defense is going to watch what you're doing. They're mm -hmm. going to defend what you do. I think um, specific to that, like we we were talking about pick play, you know, that that's an area when you, when you mentioned deception, you know, that I do think is really important. You know, like if you're doing the same thing every time, if you're setting hard picks every time, if you're never swinging around and picking for the weak side, if you're mm -hmm. never flying by, then you make it very easy to defend. There's no doubt. So increasing some variation, you know, and, and we're doing that defensively in practice. You know, there, there are some days where we tell the defense to double everything between the hashes behind the goal. Mm -hmm. There's some days we're telling them to chip everything behind the goal. We're certainly trying to figure out what works best for our guys, but it's been nice offensively to see different things so that you don't get used to doing the same thing over and over again. For sure. I look at some of the best players, guys like Ryder Garnsey or Chris Gray, that aren't necessarily physically dominant, but somehow they get their shot off. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I well, mean, because they bait people into checking before they're shooting. Right. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the more you kind of look at it, when I watch any college game or pro game or a high level high school game, pretty much every goal is a result of some kind of deception. Because if you don't do it, the defense will probably guard you pretty well. Well, and then there's certainly if you don't, I, I, I know I see your 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 path of reasoning. You know, I, I think that if you don't, then you're relying on on your athletes or your scheme to be better than your opponent's scheme. And exactly. we're gonna face a lot of great coaches, you know, throughout the years and a lot of great players. So we certainly have to be creative. Um, because if if we make it easy for defenses or offenses to plan for us or play against us, then um, you know, it's gonna be a challenge. I love that you brought up two man game. Um I want, you mentioned, you know, doubling or chipping, mm -hmm. you could push over, you could switch, you could get under. And it sounds like you're giving your team all those different looks. Um, so a fundamental is understanding coverages. How do you, how much do you right. teach those and how much, and, and how specifically do you try to attack those, those five coverages under, over, chip, double, switch? Mm -hmm. well, I think what you want to try to do is there's a delicate balance of like, overloading information with your players. Um, I think you need to go through the checklists of each, each of those because offense and defense, like we mentioned ping pong, offense and defense is always like, if they do this, then we do this. Okay, well, then the defense adjusts and they're going to do this and then we do this. So I think those are conversations you can have in a game, in a practice, right? Pulling guys aside and said, hey, you know, last time, you know, they were switching, let's fly by this time. Last, you know, last time they were right, pushing it from behind, being really physical with a pick. Okay, so let's wrap a pick for the weak side. Um, you know, so certainly like having those conversations in game, in practice is really important. But one of the things, like I said before, we're trying to do a good job, you know, especially on the offensive end of playing at a really fast tempo and pace. So, and that doesn't mean what everybody thinks it means. Obviously, it doesn't mean, right, taking 100 shots a game but it just means how quickly we're making decisions. We're trying to remove a little bit of, of overanalyzing and overcoaching within the box. So I'm hesitant at times to like tell them what to do because I want them to go really fast. Right. So in other words, you're going to tell them, hey, if they're switching, we're going to slip it or whatever, but you're not diving into it. You're going to let them kind of figure it out. Yeah. And I think they've got to work through that. You know, we've, we've done a couple of cool drills this fall, you know, fairly consistently, you know, where they've had to figure it out, certainly on the fly, as I mentioned, you know, for the first, let's say it's a 10 minute drill and coach Gabs has the defense and he tells him, Hey, for the first three minutes, you know, I want you doubling, you know, any picks between the hashes and the next three minutes, like we said, we're going to chip it. 
And then the next three minutes, you know, we're going to switch early switch calls. And so we're like forcing our guys offensively to try to get repetitions at each. And adapt. hopefully to like equip them with the knowledge to then do it themselves. Certainly. What do you think is the, um, the covered solution to the chip or the stack and whack? What do you think gives that a hard time? I mean, I think that's where it depends on who you're playing, right? I mean, if you've got a really skilled group. It may not be the best thing to do because if you do release pressure off of the back, then you leave yourself susceptible to slips and flybys, right? Because anytime that guy's going to overstep, then when you release away from the ball, you're going to create an advantage. Now, like that may be a great thing to do defensively against a team that's a little bit more, you know, rugged, if you will, or less skilled because they may not be able to complete some of those like tight passes to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, might, might not be uh, something that's a great solution to someone who's got really slick hands. Yeah. It was amazing to watch Maryland play that last year. And then it was amazing too, because sometimes they would go underneath that pick and then step out. And other times they would almost like, it looked like they were making a last second decision to sometimes get over it and, and be able to step out and chip, which is more like a traditional double when you, you know, it's more like doubling it when you follow it over the top and step out versus get under it and step out. Absolutely. I, I always thought too, Loyola did a really nice job of that. You know, like when they watched them, play some games in the last couple of years, especially against really dominant like Dodgers and really the refusal to switch a matchup, like their ability to hedge behind a pick, kind of show that Dodger out a little bit and then snap back was always really impressive. It seems to me that one of the biggest keys in all of these solutions for the offense, the coverage solutions versus the defense are, are, are using hesitations, really, slowing down. And, you know, the faster and harder you go, I think the easier it is for the defense to guard that two-man game. Whether they're meeting you on the other side, whether they're doubling or chipping, you're running right into a, a switch. You're running into a guy who's going to step out on you. You're running right. into a switch, or you're meeting your guy on the other side, or you're giving the guy the opportunity to predictably push himself right over the pick. No, I do think, like, you know, and, and I, I understand what you're saying. And I think it's a lot of like the route too for you is like the pick, repick, um, you know, action. You know, it's not something that, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time emphasizing because I just didn't want the ball to get stuck in one place. But the one thing that I will say that, you know, I'm pretty passionate about that I think really um, is the death to a lot of two-man games is like what I would call like arriving attached to your defender. So like if I'm running up to pick for you and I don't do a good job detaching from the guy who's covering me and he's like right up next to me, he's it's going to allow him to really easily communicate like pick right, pick sure. left. So true. And so if I can detach from that guy to using your points of deception, jabbing, sprinting out, getting this like five yard gap between me and this defender. So true then that's going to allow me to wrap a pick. It's going to allow me to slip a pick. And with this guy, he's chasing me into that pick. So he's going to have a trouble communicating to that on-ball defender what's happening because he's chasing me. So like our first rule of picking is always arrive detached, right? And then you assess the situation. If you feel like right that player is making contact with that offensive player, that defender is really playing the ball hard, then you need to be able to bring that pick out into that space your second piece is that understanding if that player is going to choose to go over or under, right? The closer the goal they're getting, they're probably going over it and are, are ready to switch. So that means your backpedal and shuffle should be in the direction of the over. If you think he's going under the pick, then your backpedal and shuffle is probably in the direction of the under. I love, I love the way you articulated that. I think it's so true. And I think it's true with the Dodger too. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're predictable, they're going to guard you pretty well. That's kind of what I was talking about before with deception. So whether you're picking and they're right on your back pocket or whether you're dodging and you're just predictably running towards a pick with no changes of speed, no hezzies, no lookbacks, no fakes, fake your refusal, look off your pick. You know, mm -hmm. all of these things make a really, really big difference. If you fake like you're not using the pick and come back to it and you get a little step on your man coming back towards a pick. I know Nick used to talk about that and, and yeah. I think it's really smart. I mean, it's all of a sudden you got your guy in a trailing position and yeah, you got the pickers man in a trailing position. Now you got a nice big gap to play around with. And totally, and, you know. And I give Nick a ton of credit there. I mean, he's a he does an unbelievable job of teaching like hard picks and how to switch matchups. 
you know, I remember when I was working with him in, in 15 and, and I think we were having an initial conversation about like on ball pick play. And I was like, oh, well, like, you know, if they get through the pick and he like stopped me, he's like, no, like, no one gets through picks. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, and then he kind of gave me the explanation of, well, you know, if they do this, you can repick, you can backpedal, you can turn someone going underneath on a goal line pick, right? If they belly out and kind of come back down goal line and turn it into a razor pick, it's impossible to get through. And, you know, honestly, at that moment, I, I my mind was blown. And it, it took a lot of work on my part to really understand like the intricacies of, of that particular piece. Amazing. Really cool stuff. And so how big of a part of your offense is two man game going to be? Yeah, I mean, I think for our guys right now, um, you know, we've done some of it, certainly, you know, I think what we're trying to figure out is, is who is good at what, and then put them in the situations of allowing them to play their strengths. Now, you know, I am someone who does believe, you know, very strongly in the ability to play with two hands. And, you know, I'm sure we could have a, a different conversation or a longer podcast on that. For sure. Uh, but like learning what our guys are good at, you know, certainly how we can help them evolve to, to improve what they're not good at. But if one guy may be somebody who's really good running off a pick in a certain spot. We're going to want to try to create opportunities for him to do that. Whereas there may be another guy who's not quite as slick in some of those quick decisions where he may be a guy who's a little better in space. Um, so I think that's, that's an evolving conversation and kind of part of our, our thought process this fall of trying to not overcoach them to see what people are really capable of and then developing sets and, and kind of rules and patterns that will fit into what they're good at. I feel like one of the great things about two man game is it's one of the ult ultimate teachers of the game. It's one of the ultimate ways to develop as a player because now all of a sudden you're not just running and trying to like run by somebody. You actually have to kind of think, you know, you have to, you, you have to dodge with, it's still a dodge. It's just a dodge at sort of a, a higher level of IQ because you're trying to like actually, you know, you know, a use the deception of, am I going to use this pick or not use the pick? And you've got to, you know, it's like a 90 degree different angle. Which, which is the built-in huge advantage for the Dodger to learn how to like look off a pick and use a pick or pretend you're using a pick and not use the pick and playing with that. As a starting point, I feel like that all the way through the intricacies of the adjustments you're talking about with picking and, and adjusting your pick, whether they're going under or over and the hesitations of not letting them over and inviting them over, you know, not letting them under. Um, I just feel like it teaches the game really well. How much do you try to leverage that along the way while you're trying to figure out what you're good at and how to win some games? Well, I mean, I think the other piece, you know, certainly we've spent some time, you know, picking and, and whether it be big little, be wing picking, be top center picking. You know, I think the thing that we've spent a lot of time doing this fall too is we've done a lot of unsettled and uneven work. Um, you know, I was just thinking about it and I was actually having a conversation with someone about this the other day that, you know, if you really break it down to, let's just say a five on four, you know, for example, offensively, if you dodge, there's no pick, right? You draw a slide and you move the ball, it's five on four, Yeah. right? So like trying to get these guys to understand some of the patterns and reads and decision-making points in a five on four, that's going to help your six on six offense. And it, it's going to help your right six on six defense because when you slide, the four guys behind the ball are in some semblance of zone. And so their ability to defeat, right, the five guys that don't have the ball with the four guys, right, defensively, that's going to, you know, certainly affect your ability um, defensively to get stops. So we've done a lot of unsettled work this fall. You know, I think the reality is too, Jamie, like we talked about the love of the game, that doing unsettled is fun too. It it's is. a great way in practice for guys to handle the ball and get a lot of, of scoring practice, right? Like there's, there's shooting practice, there's shooting repetitions and there's scoring practice to be like three on twos, two on ones, four on threes. Those are going to be more of like your practice scoring the ball on net, right? Versus a, a shooting session where there's no goalie in there and you're trying to hit a target. On shooting, by the way, you mentioned earlier that you feel like there's a lot of people shoot all these different ways and they don't necessarily shoot the right way. What's your definition of shooting the right way? And how do you teach like sort of the mechanics of shooting if you don't really focus as much on the deception? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, it's a numbers game, you know, and when I say that to me, it's about 
what I believe to be the highest percentage of success. And when I said there's certain guys that have certain skill sets, you may have a guy who's an unbelievable, you know, low to high shooter. And right, that's maybe he may be one guy that, you know, you allow to do some of those things because he's really good at them. And the success rate for him dropping his hands that way. Mac O'Keefe's a great example, right? Like, I mean, unbelievable, right? Low to high, low to low shooter. And if you really think about it, like if you shoot the ball, everyone teaches to shoot the ball overhand and you're looking at a clock and you're saying, okay, you're going to shoot it from, you know, one o'clock to seven o'clock or 11 to five or however you want to look at it. If you just flip the clock, right, Mac's doing the same stuff, right? So his, his margin for error is very large. And I think that is what really when we get down to kind of your conversation and your question is we want to give ourselves the opportunity to have a larger margin for error, right? So when I think about like when I say shooting the ball, and again, in my opinion, and there's a lot of opinions, and I don't pretend to think that, you know, mine's infallible. Sure. But I do believe that, right, there, there are certain pieces that would be non-negotiable, right? Like pointing your, your front foot towards the target, finishing with your body weight going towards the net, having your hands come through chin height or higher. Uh, you know, those are all things that I think are really important. And actually, just quickly on this topic, that's something that, I thought that a lot of the guys that I've coached over years that played a lot of box struggled with was falling towards the net because so much of the game is played and shots are taken off back foot, you know, in box so that when they did have time and space to shoot on, shoot on a goal, a lot of their momentum was still sitting on their back leg. So those are things for guys that, that I've coached over the years that we've really spent a lot of time with who've played a lot of box extensively. Interesting. Um, hey, let's talk a little bit on the about defense. So yeah. what's the um what what is the um you know who do you guys want to be defensively or who are you gonna to try to be? So you know, I think when when we we talked a little bit about me and, and honestly we I should have done a better job in that moment deflecting because how lucky am I to have the people that I have around me? You know, when you look at you know, my first phone call upon getting a job was to call Travis Harrington, who you know I, I had the opportunity to coach here at 11, 12, someone that has done a tremendous job coaching offense, you know, over the last 10 years. So you've got this great professional relationship there, but obviously the personal part of it too is somebody I love and trust. The second phone call was to Chris Gabrielli. Um, what a unique dynamic within our staff and that, you know, I coached Travis and Chris coached me. <laughs> Man. So, Chris is someone who's right won national championship, Big East coach of the year, unbelievable coach. So how lucky am I to have these guys around me? So you know, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't you know, mention them first. You know, with with the defensive piece, again, like offense, we're trying to figure out what we're good at. And, and that's where Chris's expertise, expertise and experience really come into play because like he's done everything. You know, we've he's played invert zone defense. He's come top down, come from the crease, come from the roll off guy. So I think what we're trying to figure out with our guys is is what makes the most sense for them. You know, the way I, I explain it a lot, Jamie, like when asked in recruiting all the time, people always ask, like, how do you want to play? And I always laugh at, the, at that question, because to me, like you build your house, you build the, the, the foundation, you build the walls but how you decorate the house just depends on who lives in it. So, you know, if you've got some really slick kids on offense, you might be a little bit more two-man based. You might be a little more skill based. If your guys are big and rugged and they're great in space, then you might be a little bit more downhill. And then conversely, defensively, if we feel like we've got a bunch of high IQ kids who can slide and recover really well, then that may be good for us. Uh, if we've got some guys who can win their matchups more, then that's going to be good for us. So, I think we're really trying to figure that out right now. How much do you guys pressure in practice? You mentioned a little bit um, that you've been, you know, you go for segments where you're doubling picks behind the net, but just in general, how much do you use pressure both to, de to develop both sides of the ball? So that's something that, you know, Brian has always been great at, has been ball pressure. And, you know, Travis Crane actually has a great saying, you know, that we, we worked together at high state for a number of years and, Ball pressure cures all defensively. And, and I think about that in conjunction with something that Joe and Horst used to always say is that people can be open when the ball's in the air, right? So, like, 
when people are moving the ball, it's okay to right be a little bit looser off the ball in the middle because they can't feed when they're transitioning the ball east-west. So, you know, A, our ability right, to pressure the ball and change the shape of the offense defensively, you know, will be super important. And then I think just kind of globally, that's something that we want to be really proud of, that you feel like when you play us, you're not going to be able just to stand on your back foot and throw the ball around the perimeter. That's going to help us offensively too, because that is something that I always felt like is hard to prepare for. Yeah. You know, if you don't see it in practice every day, it's always, it's easy if people don't pressure, right? You can exchange the ball in the perimeter. Uh, but if you can do it against pressure, then you can certainly do it against no pressure. No doubt. And if you're going to win a big game, you got to be able to handle pressure at the end of the game. No, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. So you talked about wanting to play fast. You talked about, seems like, you know, some transition and stuff. What kind of full field lacrosse are you guys um, playing? At? What do you What do you have as it relates as it in terms of like two way guys and, and mm -hmm. playing offense, defense, and you know? Yeah, it, it hasn't been as much. It hasn't been as much like two way guys. You know, there are certainly guys that will play throughout the year. Um, like we call like jokingly we call them honchos right but like the guys that play offense and then like you go back on defense and you're going to honcho up and play defense mm -hmm. right and then certainly some guys that can do some of the other things in the reverse way but when i said about trying to find limitations you know that's where we're encouraging right, our defensemen to understand that when they cross the midfield line everyone's an offensive player so we're trying to see what they're capable of you know certainly um i think one of the things that we've been really um you know, wary of is too much coaching in the transition piece. I think in the past I've been, and this is just a criticism of myself. I've been so execution based for so long, you know, like guys, you've got to be in this spot. You got to be in this spot. This is the right read. But I do think that, you know, it looks really great when it works and you look like a really smart coach but we're trying to get to a little bit different place where if we're playing at this really fast pace, we're trying to create goals that um, aren't as easy to practice against, you know, whether it is like getting to the Island when you've got four guys and they've got six guys on defense, but three of those guys on defense are looking away because they don't think you're going to go to the goal. So it's been more about like keeping our spacing and keeping the tempo up and pressure up than it has been a, that we are going to throw to this guy and pick in this spot and cut this spot. It's been more um, kind of a zoomed out approach, if you will. So you're trying to be attacking at all times, but under control, probing might be a way. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, if I've said anything, uh, you know, a lot of times this fall, you know, it's been go, you know, honestly. It, it's been go, 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 pressure, pressure. Don't ever get to the spot where we feel like, you know, defensively, a team can catch their breath and prepare for this set, right? This set that they've practiced against. Uh, I think what it's forced us to do defensively is be on high alert. You know, I think what, what you saw from us in a practice perspective is we, gave, we would give up a zillion goals for the first couple of weeks when, right, the offense had less guys in the field. And we've slowly gotten better at that. I think that is something that you know we want to pride ourselves on, but it's just becoming more popular in today's game. And a lot of the opponents that will play, you know, in the coming season, you know, play some of that style of lacrosse. We talked about pressure before. Like you don't get good at defending that in three days in the season. You know, so certainly something that we're trying to focus on right now. Love it. All right, let's um let's transition into recruiting. Mm-hmm. So um, talk to us a little bit about your philosophy on recruiting, you know, um, what you're what you're looking for at Bryant, what you're looking for um, at, out of these guys sort of athletically character wise, and then maybe a little bit position by position. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, is certainly very, very important is just your love to play the game. And as silly as that may sound, that's something that you've heard from me now probably six or seven times already in an hour is in the conversations with with you as a recruit, I, I want to feel like you love this game and you love to practice, you love to compete, you love to do extra work because ultimately that's going to make you better, but it's going to make our program better. Um, 
I think the second piece of that certainly is someone that, um, you know, has certain tangibles. There's no doubt. You know, I, I would be lying if you didn't want to recruit all the biggest, fastest, strongest guys out there. I always laugh at like these college football coaches are like, oh, I'd take a three star recruit, you know, with a five star work ethic. No, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> so, you know, there's certainly something to be said for that. But the the out that, you know, I think we have and the one really cool thing about our sport is you can be a tremendous player and not be 6'2", 205. And if you love the game, you spend a ton of time playing the game, you will get really good at a particular skill. And that's kind of the trump card, if you will, you know, that trumps the size. You know, if you're going to be undersized kid, then what is that skill that you've developed over the years that that is really special? When you think about the tangibles of size and speed, particularly, mm -hmm. um, there's, I'm sure you've, you've coached dozens of these kids and played with them. They're, they've got all the size, they've got all the speed, and they've even got good skills, but there's the, the intangibles that they're missing. And truly it's the intangibles, such as loving the game, mm -hmm. that are the hardest part to evaluate. Right. How do you evaluate the intangibles of love of the game, of smart player, of team, great team player, of um, communicator that can actually like process what's happening? How do you do that? Because that's really in the end. It's like I remember asking Lars one time, you know, who do you recruit on defense? He was like, oh, I recruit great feet. And I was like, great. Okay, good. Now who plays for you? And he's like, um, smartest guys. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you figure that out? Yeah, I, honestly, I, I wish that there was a magic you know, answer or formula to that. I do think that a lot of this comes down to relationships. And and what I mean by that is like, we'll watch a kid play, you know, in reality, right. You watch him play maybe three or four times live, you know, certainly video evaluation has evolved, um, you know, post COVID, but you have to have strong relationships with high school coaches with club coaches, because these are the people that are coaching these guys every day. And I think we have to be careful to not be overconfident in our own abilities to like change people. Yeah. You know, I think that's something that, you know, I, I've evolved in is that like when you're a young coach, you think you can just like create all these different skill sets. Um, and it, it, there's things that can be challenging. So relying on people that you trust and, you know, um, and their evaluations of, of kids, I do believe goes really far. Man. So true. Teddy Wolford was my guy. Back in the day, <laughs> you knew if Teddy Wolford, if he says that kid is oozing with athleticism and a great kid, you knew you were going right. to be But seriously, I mean, it, it really does matter um, to be able to, because the truth is, is that college coaches have a real sample size problem. There's no doubt. There's yeah. no doubt. And it's, it's better now than it was seven or eight years ago. You know, I mean, back then it was like you saw a kid play twice. And if you didn't offer him, he was going to a rival. And so that it's, it's probably better now than it was back then, but you're not wrong. It can be really hard. But in all seriousness, when you're evaluating somebody, hmm? how do you tell if they're a smart player versus not coached well? Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. Like, you know, I was out recruiting, you know, this past weekend and there was a kid that we were looking at um, and he was a midfielder. And he was like on the weak side. So there was like a righty alley dodge. And I watched the kid look at the crease midfielder on his team to see if that guy was going to pop or if he was going to empty out. And then like that kid ended up popping. So he faded to kind of a through lane. That was a moment for me. I'm like, all right, this kid's a smart kid, you know, and, and this is a kid that plays for a really good high school program. So he's certainly been coached before. Um, I think that's a great example of someone who, has been coached, certainly. If it's someone who you feel like maybe hasn't had that level of coaching, it's going to be their ability to, to hopefully see them communicate with teammates, process information, right? Like, are they staring at the ball? Are they looking to their left, looking to their right? A lot of times that's guys who play basketball, right? They played multiple sports, which is, again, a, a whole nother conversation about multi-sport athletes and, and the value of, of that particular piece. Um, but I would love to give you like a hard and fast answer, Jamie. Yeah, it's really, it's really hard, right? It, it really is. is. It is. It's really hard. And I, it's very interesting. I mean, watching somebody watch what's happening, you know, scanning. 
I used to do I used to do these video evaluations where I would like count actually how many times uh, guys would turn their heads in a defensive possession, right? Because right. it does make a difference. Now that doesn't mean they're processing anything, <laughs> but at least they're looking. Sure. You know, sure. the processing piece is, is is the perception is is really where it's at. Um, but yeah, all of these sort of fundamentals that I was asking you, sort of randomly, like draw and dump is one. You know, can right. you really draw and dump? You know, do you really know or, or do you kind of let that defender in, in the two on one sort of play monkey in the middle and just kind of give it up? Or do you really draw and or, or do you take them away from you so you score it? You know, these these little decisions. Deception is a, is a massive indicator of IQ because what you're doing when you're being deceptive is is you are non-verbally communicating with your opponent to get them to do something that helps you. You know, I mean, so if you're doing that, you're probably a pretty smart player, just like regular communication. You know, I mean, everyone talks about communication. I'm hot. I'm hot. I'm hot. That's not really communication. Communication is Brad. You can go. I got you. You know, or Brad, stay. It's a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's something that like we focus off ball a lot. Like if you're changing a pattern or rotation, is like verbal and nonverbal communication. Like turning around and saying, "Okay, hey, we're going to do this," and then having that guy like look at you and said, "Yeah, I got you. We're doing this." Like your success rate of being on the same page offensively, obviously, is a lot higher if you if you get recognition of that right change to the formation of the pattern, versus like what you're saying, right? Like we're in this set, and now all of a sudden, right, we've got three guys in one set and three guys in another. How about goalies? One of the hardest yeah. positions to recruit. Yeah, that's been fun. You know, so I I coached actually little known fact about me, I was a goalie until seventh grade. No way. And the reason why I stopped playing the position was I was the backup to Joey Kemp at modern day middle school. And I thought I would never play, which was probably a good move because he went on to be a first team All-American. <laughs> um, but so, you know, that that's a, a position I love. I coached it here at Bryant um, years ago and it's something I'm coaching now. Um, so that's been really fun. It's been great, too, just from a, a connection with those guys and seeing them on a day to day basis. But again, another position that's difficult to evaluate. You know, I do think size does matter. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we talked about shooting and just the percentages, right, of, of shots that go in if you shoot a certain way. Like, you know, I, I would love to see a study done on like shot on goal percentage for goalies six one or bigger, yeah. right, versus smaller. Like Scotty Rogers is a great example of a great player, obviously an enormous human being that I always felt people missed the goal on a lot For just sure. because there wasn't a lot of goal to shoot at, you know? So I do think size is, is something that's preferred, you know, when, when recruiting that position, but in the same conversation we talked about recruiting before, you know, elite skill sets or an elite skill can trump size. So certainly if you've got a goal, who's got, you know, outstanding hand speed, you know, or certainly great uh, anticipation that can help him if he's a little bit smaller. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's surface area. That's that's probably the biggest fundamental for goalies. No doubt. Do you no watch doubt. much? Hey, do you watch much um, PLL and do you pay attention to the goalies at that level? Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean I think that's something too. You're right. You talk about like size of goalies. You know, it's fairly consistent. You know, across professional across now. You know, is that the bigger goalies are having more success? It's also interesting that there's a lot of mid-majors represented in the PLL and the goal as opposed to uh, the the top of the food chain recruiting s- schools, you know, you right. got or and Gitz. I mean, Gitz is what, 2012? Yeah. He's a couple of years younger than me. Yeah. yeah. But, but the point is, is that, that, you know, how many, how many ACC top of the food chain recruit recruits sure. are, are dominating. I mean, it's Albany, it's Hofstra. Right. A couple of Albany guys. Right. Right. I felt like that when I was playing too. It's why you're always so impressed with like the guys who are facing off or the guys who were in the goal, you know, and back in the ML days when there's six teams, you know, and there's, there's literally six face-off guys in the world that get to take draws. You know, you're right. It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And I think what you see a lot of times is, you know, guys have success in their professional career in the first year or two. And then, you know, that's certainly where their commitment to the game that's where it gets hard, right? Is you now you're going yeah. on to year three and four, and yeah, we're in a position now where more people are like truly professional lacrosse players than you know when I was playing. But you know, it's it's a lot easier to devote kind of your your whole being 
to being a professional cross player now than it than it was back then. Do you think that the things that you watch like Blaze Reardon do that are so different? He's yeah, yeah, he's special. He is special. There's no question. Ridiculously special. Yeah, he's just unique. You know, he is unique too. But is are there things that he does? Well, I think the thing translatable to the masses or not. Well, I think what he does, like the, the one thing that he does just about better than anybody, it, and it's it's great with his personality, but like he just is somebody, and I, and I don't know him personally, but like he's so calm in that, you know, and like when, you, when you're coaching goalies and when you look at the statistics of like if you do move before a shot, right, versus if you are actually waiting and patient and see where that shooter is going to shoot and your success rate spike, like – and it's remarkable for him because half the time when guys shoot, his stick's at his hip, right? But he's so calm and he reacts to the ball so well. I think that's the one thing you can take. And when you're coaching goalies is they need to calm themselves down because if they, if they don't and they're jumping all over the place, then their their success rate's going to go, right, certainly down. Do you think his stance lends itself to being calm? Again, a unique person. And it comes back to our shooting conversation. I mean, he stands straight up and down. He stands back on on right uh, on the goal line, which certainly gives him more time to react. Um, but that's someone that, to me, is a little bit of an outlier. You know, I think that you don't see a lot of goalies have a ton of success the way he's done. But it's been remarkable to see how successful he's been. It's true. Well, no goalies play like he does, but he also steps out. He cuts down angle. I mean, not as much as a Dylan Ward, but he right. he might have his heels on the on on the line. But there's a lot of times when he'll take a step right out, and all of a sudden he's you know almost yeah. He'll go to drop a knee. He'll go to two knees. Especially like when you're getting underneath and getting a low angle shots for sure. Yeah, no doubt. It's interesting stuff. Well, anyways, um, Brad, it's so awesome to uh, talk lacrosse with you, man. Appreciate you coming you. on. And I really look forward to catching up with you next summer when I'm back in Rhode Island. I would love to. I appreciate it. Got to go down to the uh, Ocean Mist. Yeah, I would love to. Reggae night, Tuesday night. Reggae night, Tuesday night. You can have <laughs> bring your wife down. You guys can have a little uh, anniversary down here. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I appreciate you having me on. It's been my pleasure. And uh, hopefully we can catch up soon. Awesome, man. Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you. Later.